0: When I heard Mr. Arben play the Schubert cello quintet, it was like his sound was floating above the rest of the other people in the ensemble. I can't describe it.
1: Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing none of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, in this episode, I talked to Rebecca Jackson and her father, Dr. John Jackson authors co-authors of Arbin, David Arbin's life of miracles and successes. They discuss Warsaw-born Mr. Arbin's astonishing story of his survival from concentration camps during the Holocaust, his brushes with death, and subsequent achievements as a classical violinist. His story is flat out astonishing from surviving a Nazi massacre to world acclamation for his work. We discuss how music helped David Arben to carry on and thrive after surviving a number of close calls with death and coming face to face with the horror of a World War II Nazi concentration camp. The story of the Nazi guard and the camp orchestra is not to be missed. What gave David strength to survive, many people ask? Well, Dr. Jackson tells of the advice that Mr. Arbin received from his parents. Number one, you are a virtuoso. And number two, don't let anyone disrespect you. Imagine if we lived our life that way. He never bowed or was submissive. And this incredible courage and resilience was something that came directly from his parents. Others, including Dr. and Rebecca Jackson, were inspired by the strength of character. David Arbin showed his strong will from an early age, and Dr. Jackson tells the delightful and illuminating story of a young David Arbin dismissing his parents' concern about him taking up violin as a career by going on a hunger strike to get music lessons. How many of us are dedicated to pursuing our God-given gifts and abilities and what we know we're called to by going on hunger strike when we're a kid? Not many of us, I wager. Not many of us are willing to do that today. And yet, after the war, he was classed as a displaced person. And it was his determination to get to the U.S. and play violin that again saved him. Eventually, arriving on a converted troop ship in Boston Harbor in 1949, the year after my dad was born. It was only a matter of weeks before he was able to secure a letter of recommendation from the acclaimed conductor Leonard Bernstein, which helped his musical career take off. How has David Arbin influenced Rebecca and Dr. Jackson? Rebecca shares the story of when Mr. Arbin questioned her passion when she played. She vehemently denied this to Mr. Darbin. Was he upset about her denial? No. It was the passion he wanted to see come out of her. And as her teacher, he saw her as a connector of people. And I can attest to that. She is a connector of people. As we learn, he has a strong view about what makes a great artist, which is a combination of intellect and heart. According to Dr. Jackson, a man of honor, Mr. David Arbin, always kept his word and expected others to do the same. A man who lived in the now... He believed in using the gifts nature had bestowed on him. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, prepare to be inspired, and brace for impact. Rebecca Jackson, welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It was a while ago that you were you graced us with your presence and your music. So welcome back.
0: Thank you. So happy to be back.
1: And as I shared with you and uh And have told many other people our conversation about your journey, about David Arbin, and his mentorship of you inspired this character in my book, which is coming out uh, April. Well, actually, it will have come out by the time this airs. And uh, so I'm really honored to have you. And we have another special guest with you. Why don't you introduce this handsome fellow sitting next to you?
0: My father, Dr. John Jackson.
1: Hey, great to be with you both. I appreciate it. Yes, we are excited to have you uh, both to talk about your great work that you've, you've done, which is documenting another amazing human being's great work, your mentor, David Arbin. And before we get into his story, I'm going to read a little bit from his obituary. In 1941, in World War II Poland, a teenager named Chaim Arbeitman was marched into a forest by the SS along with a group of the old and sick. Prisoners in the concentration labor camp, they were told to dig their own graves. A prison assistant who knew Arbeitman spotted him along with the others and told the Nazis the boy was a violinist and was needed, and he was pulled from the crowd. Arbeitman was sent back to the camp. The other 104 were shot or buried alive. At that point, the violin became part of my body. It was me, our Biteman, known later as David Arbin, later recalled. So this is the man who you ended up, Rebecca, being taught by, mentored by. His name, his his Hebrew name literally means life. I mean, wow. Yeah, I agree. What, when you, I mean, what did you know when you first met him? What did you know of him prior to learning his story?
0: Well, so I met him in the late 90s. I was a teenager and it was at a music festival. And my first memories of him are he was always dressed very nicely with the uh, good-looking cap, and he would always have a cigar in his hand. It was a cellist there that told me that he had, have you seen the tattoo on his arm? He's a Holocaust survivor. So that was the very first time I heard of his past. And I did not have the courage to inquire, of course. And it wasn't until, fast forward, my master's thesis I was doing a paper on what it takes to be a successful concert artist. And I had conversations with um, musicians like David Arben. And it was that interview in 2007, parts of that, that was sort of the unconscious beginning of the journey of writing his biography.
1: Hmm. When you asked him, you know, what, what does it take to be a successful concert artist? What did he tell you?
0: Well, that was the interesting thing. The question that led to him starting to open up about his uh, horrific, tragic past, my question was, what do you consider your greatest musical success and why? Hmm. And rather than talking about, oh, I've performed solo with Philadelphia Orchestra 27 times, Leonard Bernstein wrote me a recommendation letter I mean just you know he he mingled with the best of the best and accomplished incredibly successful things and yet what he launched into was kind of a tribute to his family especially his parents who provided a love for him that made him survive the the Camps and also go on to do as well as he did. Yeah, the
1: seven camps that he ended up.
0: Yeah, Daddy, do you want to talk? I don't know seven camps. <laughs> There's been. You you should. Uh, you're well, well
1: Dr. Jackson, what was your first encounter with him when 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 Rebecca called you up or sent you an email and said you'll never guess or you'll be blown away by David Arbin's story? What what was your first Reaction or response.
2: Rebecca has a, a festival here in Santa Cruz, music in May. And my first encounter face to face with uh, Mr. Arbin was uh, 2008. He came out. Uh, he was not only her mentor, but also an advisor to the festival. Uh, what guest artists would be good to invite? And he had a lot of uh, amazing advice. So, but the thing I think that really caught my attention was that past connection he had with a horrific period in the 20th century, uh, World War II, and so uh, I was uh, ready to ask questions, but a little bit timid, intimidated by uh, a man of his stature, not only in the music world, but uh, all that he'd gone through and had that firsthand uh, uh, viewpoint. So anyway, he came to the house, uh, as Rebecca described, he usually had a cigar, he usually had a hat on, and uh, but sitting in our kitchen, we have a little breakfast nook. I kind of fumbled for the right entree. Uh, uh, I think I told him I wish I knew the right question to ask. He smiled, says I seldom speak of those times unless someone asks me the right questions. But that was the beginning of what turned out to be hundreds of hours of conversations and interviews, which he uh, graciously allowed us to record. He, he realized pretty soon after I peppered him with a million questions that it was a, a genuine interest. And uh, so it was, it was really a beautiful beginning if you will of something yeah. that we could never have anticipated that would result in a book someday. Yeah. Well, yeah, and
0: if I may interject, the, my dad is he's the family genealogist. He loves documenting probably most of most of the hours of my childhood are mm-hmm. on video. Mm-hmm. So when Mr. Arbin started staying with my family during music in May, it was not with the intention of were writing his book. It was genuine. My dad wanting to document, and my family being very curious to learn to dig deeper into kind of how was he able to overcome and thrive
1: despite what he went mm-hmm, through. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. You know, one of the other famous Holocaust survivors that's had a a tremendous impact in, in my life. I never met the man. Um, but he's a prolific writer, as Victor Frankl, who wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*, nine months after he was released from a uh, a concentration camp, and, and where and he too, like millions of others, lost everything. And and yet it was his response when when you look at *Man's Search for Meaning* and you you read his documentation of his own journey and the things that he learned about himself and humanity and attitude and determination and all of those things, a lot of it comes down to the space between whatever it is that happened, the event that happened, and our response to it in that, that, that space. And so here you have David Arbin, who's
2: in a concentration camp. He's how old at this time? He entered the camp in 1941, so born in 27, 14. Yeah, 14. So he's been playing for about like seven years, mm-hmm. right?
1: And so he gets taken to this concentration camp. He's getting hauled out, and he's the only one to come back. Now, obviously, that is going to leave a mark on, on anybody, right? And I mean, I could just, I could just envision the scene— In my head, you know. What did he tell you about how he made his way
2: during those remaining years? That's a good question. Uh, I think maybe the first day I met him, I asked him, what's the secret of your survival? Maybe I didn't use those exact words. But as you say, he entered... Nazi labor camps, later concentration camps, at a very tender age, all by himself. And uh, he survived not only the uh, near execution that you described in the opening, but there were many other very close calls, shall we term them. He was strafed by aircraft and a train, and uh, uh, he made so many uh, prescient decisions in retrospect to go left versus right, and survive when many other peri- many others perished, so ask him to what do you attribute this uncanny uh, miraculous ability to overcome and uh, He gave me a very pithy response. His answer was, "My parents told me two things: one, you were a virtuoso i didn 't know what that meant at the time, but it sounded pretty good and don 't ever let anyone disrespect you and uh, i 'm thinking now back to studying math in school." Uh, There are corollaries that can be derived from one single principle. So there are many uh, aspects to not allowing anyone to disrespect you. That includes don't disrespect yourself. Mm -hmm. So he began to meditate on this, I suppose, absorb it and and manifest it, if you will. And anyway, when I first heard that explanation, I, I wanted to be respectful of him, but it was kind of incredulous. How could that possibly be the explanation of surviving all these amazing close calls? But after I got to know him better, that, in fact, was that he ha- he carried an air about him that he was worthy of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he would not compromise, he would not bend, uh, no matter what was demanded of him. And uh, I think he commanded respect of even the Nazis, <laughs> mm-hmm. if I may say so. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He he uh, That may, for anyone who went through that camp experience, let me say that's a little bit far-fetched. But uh, I can recall one encounter... At the last camp where he was interred, he uh, interned. He learned there was an orchestra at the uh, at the camp, and so, uh, but the leader of the orchestra didn't want to allow him because he was Jewish. And uh, when the commander, the commandant of the camp, entered one morning, he Arben ran up to him, and and uh, obviously he was uh, upset about something or other. So the the commander was known as the killer. So he kind of. Get the picture, right? That he would just come to camp each day of the week and randomly shoot somebody and kill them for no reason. So he's, he's offering this killer a reason to shoot him on the spot. But he said, the the orchestra leader will not allow me to be a part of this because I'm Jewish. And can you imagine? He said, well, of course not. You're Jewish. Let me shoot you. <laughs> but he said, well, let's go see about that. And so maybe he had an axe to grind with the orchestra leader. I have no idea. But anyway, he came through amazing confrontations but never um, bowing, shall we term it. And mm. it. It came from his parents. Mm. And uh, so they inculcated it in him, and I think he inculcated it in, in my daughter and, and others that had the privilege and honor to know him.
1: There is a, a word, it's an it's, an, it's an Hindu word, an Asian Hindu word um, that's, it's genshai. It's spelled G-E-N-S-H-A-I. And it literally means... Never treat another in a manner that would make them feel small, including yourself. that is the actual and so like he was living that that Genshai life by honoring who he was created to be and, and thank God he had parents who spoke that truth into him and, and helped draw that out of him. I would love to learn from you, Rebecca how your experience of that man who went through the Holocaust, who, as your dad just described him, knew, had a strong sense of his worth and his value and knew his gifts, right? And then had the opportunity to mentor you and coach you and develop you and others, whether it was you or another one of your colleagues. How, when when you were not performing at the potential that he knew was within you and that you possessed and that he saw in you, how would he, what would he say to you to draw that out?
0: You know, I don't know. If, I don't know that it was something that he said. For me, it was, I just, there's very few people that I've come across in my life that like everyone's very busy. Everyone's on a schedule. everyone's like in and out. What's your appointment? Okay, next. The ability to really stay present in the moment and be generous with your time and energy is something uncommon. And with Mr. Arbin, from the very beginning, the way that he would... Talk to me, his energy was very present, very calm, very peaceful, which was why I was thinking when I heard about his tattoo, I thought i don't understand this for some so it wasn't something that he said, but throughout my time getting to not only take lessons with him, he would all, we would also go around the corner to um, some restaurants that he would frequent. Regularly, uh, conversations would continue. Sometimes we would have lessons that would last five hours. And so it was his devotion and interest, knowing that I, I really wanted to be better, his giving so generously to me uh, in any every way possible. Mm-hmm. I think really motivated me to to want to. So it was more just kind of the way that he lived and um, spent time with me, yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. This book is having a transformational impact in the lives of those who read it. And I'd like to share with you one of the reviews that was recently left on Amazon by T. Kroll. He titled his review, A Story That Doesn't Just Teach, But Moves Your Soul. There is something special when you can use a story to teach a lesson, but more importantly, connect with your soul. This story, while there are profound truths, will move your soul. I can promise that you will not walk away from reading this book the same. And isn't that what we are looking for? Something to stir our soul, to cause us to think about the direction we have taken? Take the time and enjoy this journey and don't miss the surprise at the end of the book, but no cheating and reading ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much for this review. There are dozens of other reviews and more coming in. Head to Amazon right now or go to the show notes in this episode and click on the link to buy Master the Key. Type in Master the Key, Mike Flynn, and Amazon. Do that. Purchase the book, a copy or two, give them away one book had a transformational impact in the li- in my life that was, that was the book by Kevin Hall who wrote the forward for my book and I just am so incredibly grateful for your continued support and I look forward to hearing more reviews about how Master the Key is having a transform- transformational impact in your life or the lives of those who you give the book to now back to the show you know he uh, in in my research for this conversation one of the things that kept coming up a, a key phrase is strong will that he had this strong will not only did that help him in his in his life through through the concentration camps as as a holocaust survivor but then going from you know the 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 the, the camps to you know to getting here to the US to then starting wherever he started and I'd love to learn a little bit about his arrival here and then how he ultimately arrived at this world class organization like the best of right i mean the philadelphia orchestra is like top in the world top in the sure. world yeah, right yeah, i yeah. mean so i'd love to learn what what you discovered in your conversations with him about his arrival to the U.S. and what that meant to him and what he saw as his potential future.
2: Well, we have to give uh, our listeners a little bit of background. Uh, he was born in Warsaw, Poland. At a very young age, he was taken by his father to the local barber shop where if one chair were unoccupied, that barber would pick up a violin and Play and the other barbers, while well, cutting hair, would sing.
0: The violin was hanging on the wall.
2: It was on the wall, and uh, it was a fixation point for the youngster. Where's that sound coming from? But anyway, he was obviously taken by music at an early age. Talk about uh, strong will. Parents were concerned entering into the arts. It might not be the easiest profession to pursue. They thought maybe something else would be more utilitarian. But he went on hunger strike to get music lessons. And uh, he was very skinny, and uh, the parents were concerned if he doesn't eat, he, he could die. We have to do something. Oh, so they, they they bent to his will. He, anyway, it was wow. an amazing story. His father, you know, realizing how important music was, even at a young age, took him to see a visiting soloist. And uh, that soloist had come from Philadelphia and America, although he had immigrated there himself. And uh, so, anyway, there was, like, a, I think, a, the way Arbin told the story, there was almost a 30-minute applause or, uh, afterwards, and he thought, I have to be up on stage, but he didn't want to tell his father of his aspiration, thing; you will consider me crazy. So, anyway, throughout the camps, there were two foci, I would say. One is I must honor my parents who allowed me to play violin against their better judgment, and I have to get to this man in... Uh, in America to learn under him because he got such a great reception. That's the one. So through the camp experience, he was constantly thinking, I have to get to America. And anyway, Mm -hmm. after the war, he was a displaced person in Germany where he was uh, not exactly walking on the red carpet there. But anyway, he he learned of a music festival in Switzerland. He was uh, taken in by a very angelic Swiss family that recognized his gift and how special he was as a person. They wanted to send him to Paris or to london he would have none of it i must go to american study with this guy when he learned he was at the curtis institute of music in philadelphia that's where i must go so realizing that they tried to facilitate uh, the process a little bit but he he met up with the red cross there was a jewish uh, uh, agency and even bernstein who saw him playing in post-war germany as a member of the ex-concentration camp orchestra and in prison stripes they dressed that way on stage and he was taken with his talent and uh He also helped facilitate an Atlantic crossing, leaving Germany on on an American uh, troop ship, if you will, converted for use of refugees. And they they landed in Boston Harbor on December 2nd, 1949. And truly amazing, within weeks, uh, facilitated by, uh, of course, the talent, but also by Bernstein, uh, there he was for an audition before the very man that he heard in concert at nine years. At nine years, that age. is insane, and, isn't that an amazing? I story? mean, <laughs>
0: that,
1: there's, there's, like, there's. We could have a whole entire like, like, hour long conversation on just that little snippet because there is something that you mentioned that I don't want people to to skip over or to miss. You didn't say it exactly this way, but you alluded to it. The man had vision. He had a vision of what he desired, right? And he connected that vision with, with what he knew his God-given abilities were. And he didn't let those other people influence him against developing that his God-given gifts and abilities and bringing that vision to, to fruition. And it required great a great deal of courage, which then led to confidence right to the point where he could go to the US and within a very short period of time be auditioning for that very that man i mean it's it's remarkable and it's it's so interesting that he chose the name david for his english name because if, if you look at the biblical story of david and i talk about this actually it's in the introduction of my book is that all of us have the ability to respond to life the same way that David did, which is by when we know what is at stake, by pressing forward, laying it all on the line while using our our true God-given abilities, not something else that someone has given us. Did you ever ask him why he chose the name David?
2: Well... Maybe too much detail, but, you know, at that time, it was much more difficult for the American public to pronounce Chaim, his first name now. People are more familiar with the greeting, Le Chaim, or a toast uh, to life. And uh, he was uh, coached by a couple of his mentors, if you will, at the Cleveland Orchestra, where he was a member for four years. He was uh, urged to adopt uh, an easier-to-pronounce name, and... uh, he decided I want to honor my grandfather, with whom I was very close. It was named David, hmm. and so he chose that. And then, uh, anyway, that's how I became known. I, I think his his colleagues, many of them, still knew him as Chaim and continue to call him that. Oh, really? And okay. The families that helped him, as I mentioned, there was a Swiss family. They always referred to him as Chaim, <laughs> hmm. and, uh, hmm. but uh, they still do. That's that's correct. And uh, returning to what you said, what you plucked out of all the verbiage I had for you there. It's interesting that you would notice that name David and its biblical connection. I've often thought about some of his encounters, like the one I mentioned where he was running towards the killer to get into that camp orchestra like David ran to Goliath. Mm -hmm. Like, you really should not do this. It's not healthy for you. And and there were some of his, he he lived in that particular concentration camp in barrack number 19 and. Some of the friends were watching, like, there you go. We'll never see him again. He's a dead man. And they kind of slapped him around in a loving way afterwards, like, don't ever try that again. Mm. That is suicide. Mm. And he mm. said, I, I said, I realize that playing music was my life, and it was more po- important than any danger that I confronted. It mm. was just amazing, mm. the courage mm. to be mustered from don't let anyone disrespect you or cheat you out of your virtuosic gift.
1: Right. Yes.
2: It's so powerful. And it's interesting, like you
1: have this, you know, as there's that line in in scripture where it says, as Goliath approached, David quickly ran out to meet him. Mm. And just like, just like David Arbin, quickly ran out to meet that, uh, that orchestra conductor guy in the camp. But you juxtapose that against his very emotional uh, playing style, right? And, And full of life and, and emotion. I've I've listened to some things that he's played and I would be curious Rebecca from your point of view when you first heard him play. You knew you knew who he was, right? But then when you when you first heard him play with the understanding that this man is a Holocaust survivor, did it change your your experience of watching him play and and observing his style and like what was that like when he p- put that violin in his, underneath his chin?
0: Well, if you can... Im- I mean, it's, it's very sad for me to say I only ever heard him play live once in my life. Oh, wow. And it was at that camp, and he was playing first violin in the Schubert cello quintet. So that's five string players and... I just cannot even... I mean, I'm going to try to describe it in words. You know, we at the camp, there's lots of activities going on. You're exhausted. There were a lot of concerts we also had to attend. And I remember I, there was a friend of mine who was actually laying down on some of the seats. And when they started playing and I heard him, my attention and energy... We're so captivated by his sound. And first violinists in a chamber ensemble, they generally have the most virtuosic technical line. So sometimes when you hear perhaps a concert soloist who tours around the world, you'll see that they kind of dominate the the ensemble playing, but in a way that is like a little bit, you know, I hate to be <laughs> negative about but like kind of in, in a disruptive way, it's not really um working together to create the sound. Mm-hmm. Now in this
1: instance It's not a real collaboration.
0: Something yeah, like where it's just like I'm a soloist and it's clear it kind of is obvious they always stand up above an orchestra. Right. They're competing against or even so even in chamber ensemble sometimes it sounds mm-hmm. a little bit like okay, the soloist is playing with the other people. When I heard Mr. Arben play the Schubert Cello Quintet, it was like his sound was floating above the rest of the other people in the ensemble. I can't describe it, but it wasn't raised above them like, listen to me, I'm a soloist. There was just something about his sound and his musical ability that, I don't know, he was just... It just captivated me in a way I 'll never forget, even though apparently that was kind of close to when he was about to retire from Philadelphia Orchestra, mm. and he was very mm. um critical of his own playing as all performers seem to be, but anyway, it was just a moment I'll never forget I, I
1: would I've, I've never met the man, obviously, but I would hypothesize that the reason you had that experience is because he was giving it to you. Like it wasn't, it was the antithesis of what you described previously, which was the the, the soloist, the stereotypical soloist, is playing for themselves, right? Versus Arbin, who is playing for you. He's mm-hmm. playing for his family. He's playing for the 104 people that were shot and killed in that forest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And he's just, he's been given this gift. And the whole law of abundance is that abundance has nothing to do with you. <laughs> you know, it's it's meant to be given away, right? It's meant to go through you to mm-hmm. to others, right? And um, And I would wager that's probably why that—because you're a giver, right? And so you're a giver of your own gifts, and so you receive that and you recognize it, right? And it's such a powerful thing when that happens.
0: Yeah, oh, it was it was an amazing performance. I'm I'm sad I didn't get to hear him live more.
1: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group Or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary, competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. What has he taught you about in your own pursuit? Your own pursuit of, of your professional career as, a, as an artist? And a musician and and a community curator and all of these things that you're doing. So what is it that you are chasing for yourself? Like, what does an ideal outcome look like for Rebecca Jackson? Mm. And what do you hearken back to that he taught you about being present in the journey along the way?
0: There there's definitely one I, I remember him recounting this particular story so it sticks with me and i think about it a lot during a lesson in his apartment which he lived in for decades in center city philadelphia i was playing and and he he i i was able to keep my cool and be patient and just try to do everything he said but he pushed my button <laughs> in lesson he said something to the effect of Rebecca, the way you play every note does not mean something to you. I got so mad. I'm like hmm. that is not true, you know, anyway, He hearkened back to that instance and said, "I liked that to come out of you, you know the 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 you, oh the fire, yeah, oh. yeah, he liked that that and and he's like, and you were right, you were right, and anyway, so just that really made an impression something I think about is. I'm I'm such a in my head person, and a lot of the time music will suffer if you are in your head, as well as if you don't have the chutzpah or confidence and assurance, like he had a more natural ability to believe in himself. Uh anyway, those that's something definitely that I, I think mm-hmm. about and and will continue for the rest mm-hmm. of my life to strive to be better Do at. Do
1: you know what the word believe actually means? Tell me. To love.
0: Oh, really?
1: It's a German-rooted word, liebe. Uh. It means love. Yeah. So when you literally believe in your abilities, yeah. you are loving the creation that you are. Yeah. Right. And he understood that whether he knew the word or not, but like you know, and his parents and other people instilled that belief in him. I, go ahead. Well, one yeah. more thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: Something, you know, I, I do think with a mentor, a teacher, there's something, you, one of the reasons probably why you they become this important figure in your life is that they are able to pinpoint and um, recognize things that, that, perhaps you as a unique student are good at. Mm-hmm. And something he said as he spent time with my family at my festival, he said, and you know, and I, I know music is my life. I love to play. I know I have so much competition and I'm not the best violinist, nor will I ever be. But he said, Rebecca, you are such a connector of people. Mm-hmm. And I I think about that a lot as well, that he recognized that. And so it's important for me as I kind of move forward in my journey. It helps inform me of the the projects that I do and, and gives me the boost and encouragement mm-hmm. <laughs> to continue trudging along. Anyway, I don't know if that Yeah,
1: no, that, that's, that's, that's important. And, and actually, I was going to ask you this question, but I had forgotten about it. and You gave me time to actually think about it again, but so you you said you've mentioned that you were in your head a lot, you are in your head a lot when you're playing and maybe even in life, but can you recall a time where you played emotionally and what that felt like? if that question makes sense, where you like just said for like i'm not gonna I'm just gonna play with all my heart and not necessarily with my head, even though you have the knowledge, obviously, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. But what did that feel like and what was different?
0: Well, I think that's why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm addicted to performing is usually I'm able to let go once the curtain rises and the performance begins Mm -hmm. and letting go most of the time. Sometimes I still remain in my head, but no, it's 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 a liberating feeling, and also it's almost like getting into a different character, which is not mm-hmm. naturally who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's addictive to feel that liberation, freedom to just just go with the sounds and the phrases of the music,
1: and and have that make you feel very intensely. Doctor Jackson, what what did he what did David Arben teach you about, you, you mentioned his strong sense of self worth and value and understanding of his gifts in the process of getting to know him both uh, vicariously through Rebecca and then intimately through your conversations. What did he teach you about your own sense of worth and
2: value and gifts? I don't know if it's the perfect answer to your question, but, um, one Unaccepted, thing. we only accept perfect answers oh, right. here. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it may take a while to get the perfect one. But anyway, um, well, you know, you mentioned that uh, there's that balance. And that was Arben's uh, comment. Uh, I'm not the musician type to ask him all the musician questions, but it came up in conversation. You know, What constitutes a great artist? He said it's, it's a combination of intellect and heart. And uh, without both, you don't have greatness. And uh, so I suppose that uh, not only as a musician, as a person, he had that balance. And so he could tell you some very, very interesting stories from history, but he also could lead by not just conversational answer, but just by um, how he lived his life. We, We spent time... On the same island where she first met him in Puerto Rico. Uh, and we just got to walk the streets. And uh, one of the things he said I mean, he always was so grateful for the Swiss family that uh, what he termed, they made me into a human being again. I came out of the camps an animal. Hmm. And uh, so he really, really loved them and was very protective. He, <laughs> at first, not allow us to know their name and he didn't want us to talk with them. And <laughs> he was, he said, I'm a very loyal friend. And so. And he was very cute uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, when we were on the island of Puerto Rico together, uh, where he had entertained some members of that family, and of course, you know, we all know Switzerland is, is a land of, of great beauty, he was almost upset to think back on a time when they come to visit and they weren't noticing the beauty. Maybe we don't have the Matterhorn. Mm-hmm. We have a beach here. We have an ocean. We have a sky that's so blue. He says, you know, he was so taken with the beauty of nature and the beauty of life. And so I think he was not just a musical mentor. He was, you know, as we term in today's vernacular, a life coach. He mm-hmm. was a life coach mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he gave in terms of positive feedback, any good coach will, will reward you when you're homing in on the target, so to speak. Uh, he said, you have an, an interest about my life and, and the things I went through that I don't think anyone else had, your family. And so... That was quite a compliment
1: yeah i mean i i think that everybody needs to know his story i mean that, yeah. and that's why i yeah. think you guys have written the book yeah. and it's it's yeah. a i mean this not only does this book need to do well but it needs to be made into a major motion picture i mean because there unfortunately there are a lot of people in the world that do not read right. you know right. but they see and to integrate the music that he played with film. I mean, I hope you guys are like optioning this book out already because it, it can, it can have a massive impact. I think as well on the big screen, do you have a favorite
2: story that he recounted to you? Well, a signature story, shall I term it? And I don't know if Rebecca's going to object my telling this particular, but many of his friends, you know, many of his friends were musicians and they all knew the story. He told it with frequency. He, uh, They got a big laugh out of it. Well, anyway, Rebecca made reference to his apartment where he lived for decades in Philadelphia. And uh, there was a change in ownership while he was there. The man and his wife uh, were killed in a car wreck, so the uh, property came under the management of their son. uh, Quite a prominent lawyer in Philadelphia. Well, it wasn't long after that where Arvin received word and his lease was not up. He had months to go on the lease that the rent rate was rising. Well, that's disrespect. <laughs> anyway, mm. he called the office and uh, and anyway, uh, I think the lawyer wanted to handle things over the phone and Arvin sensing that there was a little bit of uncomfortable about him coming personally, to the office, he insisted. So mm-hmm. he not only ran to the killer in the camp, he ran to the lawyer's office. And uh, anyway, they talked about the the, the price of doing business and the paint's more expensive for the apartment building. So, of course, the rent has to rise. And anyway, uh, Armin said, but your father, I had a contract with your father. And so, though, I want to know, where's the contract? I want to see. And he says, it was a handshake. He said, that's not a, a real contract. You know that. And uh, so Armin concluded this this encounter by saying, I can see the way things are going. I'm going to need a lawyer. You're a good lawyer. I want to hire you. Represent me against you. <laughs> <laughs> His rent did not rise for decades after that. Oh wow, wow, that's he a funny story. Confront Goliath and
1: he won. <laughs> yes, sometimes we just got to confront it. You know, yeah. uh, obviously, the 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 fear that he experienced in a concentration camp is real, right? It wasn't like a, a false fear that many of us deal with. Uh, in life when we're trying to achieve goals or outcomes or or pursue things. But a lot of times, the fastest way to the outcome that we're desiring is by running in and and facing it and laying it on the line.
2: And if I may uh, add quickly, uh, another aspect of don't let anyone disrespect you and make sure you respect yourself And respect your parents. There's a familiar line from the scriptures, isn't it? First, uh, command with a promise for a longer life. And and Arben made it to about 90 years old, so uh, maybe that's somewhat of a proof of the concept. But anyway, his father was a man of honor who um, made agreements with a handshake, such as probably was fairly common in those days, but he kept his word. And uh, for Arben, it was a sacred trust uh, I think he kept his word, no doubt about it. And he expected others to dealt with to do the same. So he engendered these same standards, which again, I, I get back to respecting your parents. The lawyer was disrespecting his parents, his father's handshake with this man. Mm. Think about that. Mm. You know, think about mm-hmm. that a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, we're we're connected. We're standing on the shoulders of past generations and our relationship, not only to the present and the future, it is important, but also to the past. It's uh, it's a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, he embodied that. and uh, Anyway, I'll, I'll say one of his funny remarks uh how funny it was, but when the subject of the Holocaust came up, he more or less was uh, quiet and on uh, uh, occasion arose, he'd say, since you have said that you don't understand, you don't know the exact question to ask me, I'm going to open up. If you had told me you understood all about this and you started being the big authority on the subject matter, I would have not said anything, but I know that you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You don't know. He said, he said but you said you don't fully understand the mysteries of life. He said, you're right about that. How do I know? Because I don't understand it. <laughs> I was there. If I lived 100 lifetimes, I would never understand what I went through. Yeah. So he had a humility, as deep of an intellect as he was, he had a, a humility about what he didn't know. Mm-hmm. Very powerful.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, as we wrap up, and, and as you experienced, Rebecca, the I, I always conclude the conversation with the same three questions of each guest. I already asked you those questions, so you don't have to re-answer them. But your dad's going to answer them in a minute. But before we get there, I to I want to know if David Arbin were sitting here today, and he he were listening to to people that had aspirations that felt like they had a calling that felt like they had a gift, but that they were afraid of what it might cost them to pursue that. What would he say to them? What might he say to them if you had to put words in his mouth?
0: <laughs> I don't, oh gosh, I, I don't, I don't feel confident about <laughs> put words in his mouth. I do remember something that comes to mind when you ask that is he had some students who um, were of Spanish-speaking descent. And he said, they kept saying, mañana, mañana. He says, no, today, now. Mm, mm, so anyway,
1: that's my mm. simple answer. Yes, I like, love that. That's powerful. That is powerful. Now, before we get to the questions, I need to know where, when the book comes out and where people can go to get it.
0: Our scheduled release is at the end of May 2019. And you can pre-order your copy at DavidArben, A-R-B-E-N, dot com. And also, yeah, just okay. you can follow so details there. That
1: will link to Amazon and all of those places. And and I'm sure you're learning all kinds about the oh, book process. Oh, dear. Whoa. And yes. yes it's, Major. <laughs> it is. The, the business end of publishing a book is messy, shall we say.
0: I agree. Yeah. Yeah, we're learning. We're learning. Fortunately, we have some very, very wonderful friends who are helping us
1: in, in a lot of different aspects. That's awesome. Now, Dr. Jackson, I, I ask the same three questions of every single guest um, regardless of who they are. And the first question, and, and these are, you can have fun with them, you can be serious with them, uh, you can give short, pithy answers, you can give long answers, it's up to you. If you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it
2: into a superpower, what would it be? Uh, The word that comes to my mind is reverence. And uh, it's a reverence for my elders. It's a reverence for our family history. It's a reverence for uh, the gift of freedom we enjoy in this country. Kind of uh, going off on tangents, aren't I? But anyway, uh, and that kind of links with what we've said about Mr. Arvin. He had a reverence... For life and uh, and you know, some of us are a little bit less assertive, less uh, expressive, quieter, a little more shy, and uh, so uh, yeah, I'd like to get some of that super urban power <laughs> in terms of, of uh, hopefully, inspiring, in hopefully inspiring people by example rather than lecture. His highest praise for the two ladies uh, uh, that had the greatest influence of him recovering from what we today call PTSD he was dreaming uh, every single night for five years or more of the Nazis uh, chasing and killing him and he would awaken in a bathtub of of sweat so mm. uh, he attributed a lot of his recovery to these ladies and he said they never criticized him they always led by example and uh he 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 criticized the, the Swiss couple, for example, for going to church. Why do you go to church? Well, to you know, worship God. You worship God? And so he had all of these, you know, sort of potentially infuriating and insulting questions, and they just smiled. Mm. They just smiled. They continued to minister to him. And uh mm. so I think that many of us uh to the extent that it depends on me or you or us. Let us be at peace with all men and women and, and to be uh, the blessed peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what are three
1: lies that we tell ourselves that David Arbin would say are preventing us from realizing the potential of our God-given
2: gifts? Well, this seems very metaphysical, the way I'm going to answer, but he was a little bit of the philosopher, and I would say a rather deep one. He quoted his parents saying, "To not just to him, but to all the siblings of different ages, you are important, you are special. No one can kill you. Even if they did, they cannot destroy you. So he was sort of speaking of an afterlife in a way, right? Mm. He was speaking of something that cannot be destroyed in a physical uh, encounter. A physical agency is not uh, able to touch something eternal within us. And uh, anyway, so I think he would speak to the lie of of uh, a brute force. He would say that is not—he said, for example, here, here's an amazing quote from him. He said, to the best of my recollection, as much killing there was in the camps, they might kill you before the music started, they might kill you, they probably would kill you after the music— but there was no killing during the music. He says, "More powerful music is the most powerful thing in the world, more powerful than any bomb." Mm. So he was speaking of a force beyond the physical, if you will. And, and for him, it was music. For us, uh, you know, maybe we call it spirit, whatever we want to, mm-hmm. whatever uh, vocabulary we happen to have. But mm-hmm. uh, I think he he spoke of the illusion of fear. Yeah. Mm. Fear is not real.
1: Mm. Mm. Last question comes from the title of a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? But it's 100 years from now, and you've left a set of instructions for the next generation of of the Jackson Family Orchestra to come up with a piece that encompasses how you would answer that question, how will you measure your life? What kind of piece would they create?
2: Uh, I might have been thinking so much about my answer, I might not have fully appreciated your very probing question. And uh, you said I could have fun with this or go yeah, on a tangent. Totally. I'm going to uh, answer it in a peculiar way, but I would like for the future generation a variation on what my father told me uh, when he knew I was going to get married. He said, uh, Let me give you the advice my father gave me when I got married. There's never been a divorce in this family. Don't be the first. <laughs> so, my, my father grew up in the Midwest, where I was actually born in the state of Missouri, where uh, that's not uncommon language used at least at that day and age. And so so what I would say to the future generation, um, there's never been a divorce from faith in our family. Don't be the first.
1: Mm, mm, I love it. Rebecca Jackson, Dr. Jackson, David Arbin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and look forward to sharing this powerful story with my audience. And I can't wait for the, the impact of David Arbin's life to make its way through the world. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting FlynnWealthStrategies.com the Lot Marketing Group, and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.